Welcome to Conversations with Healers, a podcast and video interview series that features intimate, soulful, and cozy conversations with self-healers and healers. Healer to healer, we dive into all aspects of self-healing and healing and being and becoming a healer. I am Damla Aktekin. I am a healer and the host of this podcast, and I can't wait for you to listen to this conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Damla Aktekin with A Drop of Om. And today I have a very special guest that I'm so excited to introduce to you. I have with me here, Dr. Dawson Church. He's a health writer, researcher, and um, he has written a number of books, including The Genie in Your Genes, Mind to Matter, and his new book is Bliss Brain, which I'm excited to dive into. He is an EFT meditation and energy medicine pioneer. He's been uh, an author and co-author on multiple studies on the effectiveness of EFT. And now you're shifting your focus to meditation a little bit. Um, And that's actually how I sort of found you. EFT is something I've used for myself and for my family and for my clients for over 10 years now. And I have an online course where I reference one of the studies that you have been involved in about how EFT tapping reduces cortisol. So I'm so honored that you're here, welcome. (laughs) Oh, Dava, it's a great pleasure to be here. And I so applaud your own healing journey and your own journey of discovery. Yes, and tell us, about your journey, Dawson. I know you have a, a fascinating story uh, in like big brush strokes, like what led you to EFT? What led you to meditation? Like, how did you get here? What has been your self-healing? My journey, my path is basically one of going from desperate misery when I was young, when I was a teenager, to finding that I could release a lot of the tension, suffering and stress that I was under. And so I, I tell the story in this brain. I haven't told the story before, and I kind of keep my, my personal life very private usually in my other books. But in this brain, the publisher said, we want you to write the first chapter and one other chapter on your personal story. So I share that, that in this brain. And um, I had a pivotal moment when I was 15 years old, and I had a really rough time growing up earlier than that. And I remember that one moment when I was 15 and I, happened to be in a hotel with a full-length mirror in the hallway. And I walked past the full-length mirror, and I turned to look at my 15-year-old self, and there I was, I had bell-bottom trousers on, I had a big man purse over my shoulder full of books, I had hair down to my chest, and I, you know, I was just, I, I, I was, that was me. And as I looked into the eyes of this person in the mirror, this thought flashed into my mind, that's the saddest face I've ever seen in my life. And I realized with that moment, I had to try and fix myself. And so I began to take psychology courses by mail order. There was no internet back then 50 years ago. And I took mail order psychology courses. I, I joined a spiritual community, went to live there. 
I learned about the perennial philosophy that analyzes all the religions. I learned spiritual healing. I learned meditation. I learned all kinds of, of, of tools like that. And so it really began with my attempt to fix myself. And it's, it's been a wonderful journey. And then when I discovered EFT in 2002, suddenly that accelerated my, my development. And then I began to med meditate every single day in 2001. And that was really pivotal for me. I then realized that this wonderful field had very limited research. So I retrained myself as a researcher and then began to, and I had never thought of myself as an author or a researcher or anything like that, but I began to learn about research, put research teams together, do research. And also I wrote my first book on the subject and then really began, I thought I really could connect with people through both research and the writing. So I began to make that my, my focus and also just sharing the discovery that you don't have to be as miserable as I was at 15. In fact, you don't have to be miserable at all. And the new research is showing that we, when we discover these wonderful states of letting go of our suffering, letting go of our sense of a limited self and blending what I, with what I call in my books, the non-local universe, blending with non-local mind, blending with non-local consciousness, we can become not just happy, we can enter the kinds of ecstatic states. We heard Rumi and, 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 and Kabir and Hafiz and St. Teresa of Avila and St. Catherine of Siena, St. Francis, all of, these, all of these great figures of history, Ramakrishna in India, they describe ecstasy. And in this brain, I'm showing that you don't just get a little bit happier, you get a lot happier as you merge in those states and it affects the whole rest of your life. That's just a quick sort of thumbnail of my personal journey. That's wonderful. And I wanna uh, bring our listeners along with us. So can you explain to us um, what EFT tapping is and what meditation is and how they may be similar or different? There are lots of good methods out there. I, I love grounding, movement, yoga, qigong. There are lots of ancient methods like that. And then there are very new ones that are being introduced now as well. And so uh, the, the, the fundamental one that's been used, again, for all of those, all of these centuries, millennia, is meditation. And it was really the best technology that our species had. Like we had yoga thousands of years ago, we had meditation. And we, we use these ancient methods to shift our energy. And when I say energy, I mean the energy that I measure nowadays using an MRI, using an EEG. And we're literally shifting body energy, we're shifting brain energy, and the energy signatures of our brain change a lot with these ancient techniques, acupressure, acupuncture, Ayurveda, all of these things are changing our energy systems in our body. And so EFT is a really simple way of applying the principles of acupuncture but not using needles, but instead of using tapping. So you simply tap on a set of acupuncture points like I'm doing now. And research shows this rapidly changes brain function, rapidly changes the brain's energy flows, rapidly changes stress hormones like cortisol and adrenaline, and then makes our body shift very, very quickly. In some of the, the stunning research that's been done, over 100 clinical trials of EFT, researchers found that in just one hour of EFT, 72 genes changed expression. It's literally changing the gene expression in your body. That's how remarkable these, these, these forms of energy healing are. So meditation is the fundamental technique, ancient technique for well-being, and then you layer in EFT, which again is acupuncture has been around for thousands of years, but again, 
EFT just, just puts it in a very short one minute package you can do whenever you're stressed. So meditation for baseline well-being, EFT for stress, and then you go to explore other things that might work great for you like yoga, like grounding, like qigong, all of these things can really help you shift your life. Yes. One of the things you are explaining in Bliss Brain, which I had a chance to read, so I'm so happy about it. <laughs> and so I really talked to you about it, is this um, transition from task positive network to default mode network to enlightenment circuit in the brain, uh, which I thought was a phenomenal um like a simple but phenomenal way to explain it. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, and this, these networks are really vital to modern neuroscience's understanding about the way our brain works. So the old idea was that we had brain regions. You had a part of your brain that did something. But we now realize that the brain's regions work together in systems and networks together. And so, there is this fundamental network called the task positive network. It's mostly regions on the side of your brain and it's activated when you do something. So when I'm mountain biking and I need to go down a, a difficult path, and I need to make sure I have my attention fully on the task at hand. If you slip and fall on a mountain bike, especially if you're six foot five like me, it isn't pretty. So it's a task, it's a demanding task. My task positive network is totally lit up paper when I'm in a, in a like right now I'm we're, we're chatting together I'm really my task positive network is totally focused but what happens when I finish my task and go take a break so maybe I go take a break for this I go sit outside in the garden look at the roses and what we thought happened what we used to think would happen is that when the brain was resting that it would reduce its usage of energy. But the puzzle was that research showed that the brain kept on using just as much energy when you weren't doing a demanding task as when you were. And this was a big mystery for a long time. Why was the brain working so hard when you weren't working at all? And it turns out that as the activity of the task positive network drops when you finish a task, the activity of this other brain region called the default mode network rises. So they are an inverse proportion. I'm doing a task, suppresses the activity of the default mode network. When I'm not doing a task, the default mode network kicks in and increases its activity. And that's just the state the brain defaults to. So it's always using the same 20% of our body's energy. It never, never changes much day in, day out, day or night, sleeping or waking. It's always 20%. But the excess is always taken up by the default mode network. Now, if I was uh, if I was the king of the universe, I would have made the default mode network the brain handled happiness because surely we should be happy when we're resting. But there was a giant study done of 22,000 people by a team of two famous Harvard psychologists, and they looked at this. They had people install an app on their smartphones that at random intervals it would beep them and would say, what are you doing now? How do you feel? And they found that when people were resting, they actually weren't happy. In fact, they found that they were doing negative thinking 47% of the time, almost half the time their thoughts were negative, especially when they were doing nothing. And when you're, when you're doing the mountain 
biking, when you're doing that spreadsheet, you, when you're idle, when your brain's idle, the default mode network is associated with, with unhappiness and, and continual unhappiness. It's like, why did Mother Nature set up our lives to where when we're resting, we're miserable? But it turns out there's a really good evolutionary explanation for that, which is that you survived, your ancestors survived, our species survived because we learn to pay attention to threats. We have a whole bunch of emotional machinery in the middle of our brains, our emotional limbic system in the midbrain, and we memorized threats. The lizard, the sharks have it, and we can memorize and it's really useful in terms of evolution to remember what the tiger that almost ate you yesterday looks like and the tiger that might eat you tomorrow and how you can avoid that. So the default mode network, again, going back hundreds of thousands of years of evolution, millions of years actually, defaults to thinking about the bad stuff that happened in the past and the bad stuff that might happen in the future. And the default mode network is not and never is in the present moment. It's all about the past and the future, about depression, about the terrible things of your past, anxiety about the possible bad things in your future. And that's what we default to whenever our brain isn't engaged in a task. And now that we have no tigers, we have no lions, there are no poisonous snakes sort of winding their way around the corner of our desk ready to bite us on the ankle. So we don't have all these threats anymore. And so what we do is we look and our default mode network hunts for everything wrong in our lives and the lives of people around us. And that's why we're doing negative thinking all the time. So even when there are no threats to our survival, we're still obsessed with the pandemic and the financial crash and the, the election and, and the, the climate change and all the stuff. We just focus on whatever bad stuff there is. And I can tell you the pandemic will be over at a certain point, though the financial crash will be over, the election will be over, climate change will get a lot better. And will our default mode network is just hardwiring our brains, will still find something to worry about. You put the average person in a totally beneficial environment where everything's okay, the default mode network cranks up and starts thinking obsessively about the bad things of the past. That's the way our brains default to working. So what happens in these enlightened masters that we study? And again, I mentioned some names from a long time ago, like Ramakrishna and St. Teresa and St. Catherine, St. Francis, like Hafiz and Rumi. But there are modern mystics. There are Franciscan nuns who spend 20,000 hours of their lives in rapturous, ecstatic contemplation of God. There are Tibetan monks who spend 40,000 hours of their lifetimes in meditation, deep meditation. And they meditated, some of them, 14 hours a day. And they've done that for three years in a row on meditation retreats. So we have now the equivalent of these, these great saints of, of the past. We now have women and men today who we can study with MRIs. And we can map the energy of their brains. And we find that their brains are not working at all like the average person's brain. They can suppress the default mode network. And they can suppress negative emotion. And that's what I call in my book, Bliss Brain, I call this the enlightenment circuit. 
there are four networks to it. The very first of the four networks, I won't cover them all here, but the very first one is the network that controls negative emotion. And unless you can control all the random negative emotion that's going on in your life, then you are going to be at the mercy of all of the bad feelings that are going on. Just like today, for example, my wife and I were talking about um, our, our, one of, one of our, 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 our kids and grandkids and they're remodeling their kitchen. And the contractor just discovered that there's black mold growing underneath the floorboards of the kitchen. And so that's a fact, there's black mold and their remodeled kitchen is already taking four months to remodel while their three small kids and them are disrupted. So now the insurance company has to get involved and will pay for the removal of the mold, but this black mold is gonna take weeks more to remodel the kitchen. So how do you hold this? If you're in the default mode network, it's like, oh no, it's gonna take weeks more, we'll be able to a kitchen and there's black mold growing in our house. That's the one narrative you can take. Okay. The, other, the other narrative is, wow, thank goodness we found that there's black mold in the house and the insurance company is gonna to pay to take it away. How cool is that? Okay, same circumstances, but a whole different explanatory framework. And the difference this produces in people's brains is that those monks, those nuns, ordinary people who learn these techniques, they are able to suppress those negative emotions and have a positive explanatory fr framework for their lives. They light up the enlightenment network, they shut down the default mode network, and as a result, they aren't just happy, Research shows that they are dramatically more happy than the average person. They are in absolute ecstasy. And that if we learn the techniques they have, we can be there too. I love that. And which reminds me to something you mentioned in the book, which is you talk a lot about using the software of consciousness or our thoughts to change the hardware of the brain. Um, can you give us a few examples how that might happen in our brains? Absolutely. And for a long time, the idea was, the, the, the concept was in science was that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of complex brains. So from simple well-celled organisms on through fish and reptiles and then early mammals, our brains became more and more and more complex. Primates have big complex brains, humans have enormous complex brains. And the idea was that, that, that this, this eventually, this, these complicated brains eventually threw off this phenomenon called consciousness. But there's no proof in science for that at all. There's only evidence showing that there is consciousness in the universe and our brains are much more like receivers and transceivers of that consciousness. So consciousness we're now discovering literally changes the brain. In one of the stunning case histories I have in Bliss Brain, I talk about uh, a TV reporter called Graham Phillips, and he'd heard about the beneficial effects of meditation. So he got his TV crew together and went into a lab. He got himself tested. He then began to do an eight-week mindfulness meditation structured journey, and then he went and got tested again afterwards. And the with, they, they filmed this whole episode, and I, I have a link to it in, in my books, and they filmed him being tested, having MRIs done, tests of his reaction speed, of his cognitive function, all kinds of psychological tests, but they measured, minutely measured, 
the mass, the size of every single part of Graham Phillips's brain before he began the meditation challenge. After two or three weeks, he felt a lot less stressed. After six weeks, he felt really calm. After eight weeks, he went back into the lab and they found that parts of his brain, as he had changed his consciousness, as he was consciously a different person, parts of his brain were heavier and bigger, 3% bigger, 4% bigger. But the part of the brain that had changed the most in the eight weeks was a, a C-shaped piece of tissue in the center of your brain called the dentate gyrus. And his dentate gyrus in eight weeks had grown by 22.8%, okay? That is almost a quarter bigger than it was before that. His change in consciousness had produced a change in his brain. And there have been many studies now done by Sarah Lazar at Harvard and several other researchers showing that these things are triggered by meditation. Meditation triggers the development of all kinds of the parts of our brain, especially the heavy parts. And again, if you have an ability to regulate emotion, then you have the hardware required to live a happy life and not be at the mercy of every random thought out there. So in this way, consciousness, awareness, is literally changing our brains. And I'll mention one other study because I was on a, um, I was interacting yesterday with a man with early onset Alzheimer's. And I just really sympathized with him because my father died of Alzheimer's and I've known people with Alzheimer's. And it's really just as, as they shut down and stop recognizing people, their body sensation shuts down. It's a prolonged and miserable death. And what happens at Alzheimer's is that these plaques form on neurons in our brains. And plaques are like, they're like the plaque on your teeth. They're like these gummy, gooey, sticky, tar deposits that form inside the brain. And they stop your neurons from signaling. And they impede the, 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 the transmission of signals through your brain. So you have more and more and more of these beta amyloid plaques building up in your brain. Eventually the Alzheimer's becomes obvious, gets worse and worse and worse, and you die. So it's a, it's a very, it's a terrible disease, terrible death. And what these researchers found was that as they looked at Alzheimer's patients and their brains and <clears throat> how much beta amyloid plaque they had, they found a direct correlation between the buildup of Alzheimer's plaques and negative thinking. And the more negative thinking people did, the more beta amyloid plaques. Those with the most negative thinking had the most beta amyloid plaques. By our thinking and our consciousness alone, we are literally controlling the cleanup process in our brain that leads to or doesn't lead to these degenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. So there is evidence now showing that we grow regions of our brain, that we can clean up our brain, that we can change our bodies radically by using our consciousness. That's fascinating to me. <laughs> and um, which reminds me of, so we, we've so far talked about how meditation can help you calm down from and move from misery to bliss and more expanded happiness. We talked about how meditation can change the like the literal physical mass of your brain and the connections of your brain. Um, the two other things that really caught my attention that you had mentioned in your book were meditation and uh, EFT tapping also affect immunity, as well as you mentioned a study about um, 
meditation increasing intuition and clairvoyance and telepathy can you tell us about that and then any other um, benefits of meditation that you feel we need to know about yeah those studies were so cool and those two immunity studies the ones i did at esla institute which is a big teaching center in northern california and we had people in one for a weekend meditation retreat we measured all kinds of things like happiness and anxiety and depression and and pain before and after the retreat we also measured the levels of cortisol and also the levels of antibodies so we have these antibodies in our saliva in our eyes and when we're assaulted by bacteria, by toxins, by viruses, like the coronavirus, for example, we need those antibodies to be there to stop them invading our cells and getting an infection. So our level of antibodies is important. And we found in that meditation retreat that people's level of cortisol dropped. And when your level of stress hormones drops, then usually all kinds of good things happen in your body and we found that their level of immunoglobulins of these antibodies rose by 27 percent in just a weekend i mean that's a, a amazing result was just one weekend of meditation and the other was a, a week of eft it was actually a five-day eft course again measuring cortisol and immunoglobulins before and after and there their cortisol dropped 37 percent but their immunoglobulins, their antibodies went through the roof. Their antibodies rose by 113%. And this is an antibody called salivary secretory immunoglobulin A. And so when, for example, you have a coronavirus that comes in to your eyes or touches your eyes, your nose, your mouth, these antibodies have what are called antigens on the end of them. And they bind to the spikes of the coronavirus and they they actually immobilize the coronavirus. So they're effective as at immobilizing coronaviruses at the point of first contact in our nose, in our mouth, in our eyes. And we found again that these antibodies rose by 113% in one week of tapping. These people had double the immunity on Friday they had on Monday. So it was just amazing to do that, those studies. And so that was one physical effect. And again, there are less, probably 20 clinical trials of EFT for pain. There are trials of EFT for autoimmune diseases. And all of them show that as our emotions shift, as our consciousness shifts, our body shift right along with them. And then the ones, the other study you mentioned was a, a big analysis of many meditation studies and also uh, a primary analysis of the effects of meditators. And they found that these effects of these elevated emotional states in meditation also was correlated with all kinds of increases in what we think of, of as anomalous abilities. So they reported more synchronicity in their lives, more clairvoyance, more telepathy. All these things improved, all of these things increased as people became deeper and deeper meditators. And so it looks like there's not just a health effect of meditation, there's also some kind of way in which we're interacting with these big global information fields, things like distant healing and clairvoyance and telepathy and so on. Those seem to be more active as well. So Dawson, are all meditations created equal? Meaning, um, like as if I'm a newly starting person, can I just close my eyes and go into bliss brain? How does it work exactly? And what do I need to get there? <laughs> That's what I was trying at 15. The, the spiritual teacher said, meditation is so easy. Close your eyes 
and still your mind. But we know now that you close your eyes, the default mode network cranks up, your mind is not still, and you start thinking negative thoughts. So that kind of meditation did not work for me at 15, never worked for me very well. I mean, I kept on sticking with it for years and years and years and years and years, and I did slowly get better at meditation. But in Bliss Brain in chapter one, there's one section of chapter one that's called from 50 years to 50 seconds. And it took me 50 years to figure a lot of these things out and then reading hundreds of scientific studies. But the 50 seconds comes from the retreats I lead. I do virtual retreats, I, I do virtual weekends, I do in-person in, in weekends sometimes as well. I do week-long trainings. And so in one of these, a few months back, we had people hooked up to EEGs before and after a one-week training. And the first day, they were able to start to acquire these elevated states. But by the end of the week of training, they were able to acquire those states in three, four, five minutes. And these are states that meditation adapts thousands of hours to obtain. The, neuro, the neuroscience expert running the EG part of the retreat was just, just amazed at how people were able to acquire these elevated brain states of the adepts, of the monks and mystics, and they were doing it in a week. So by the end of the week, we hooked one lady up to the EEG, began to meditate, closed her eyes, and she was there in 47 seconds, under 50 seconds, under a minute. So that's why that part of the book is called from 50 years to 50 seconds. I spent 50 years figuring this stuff out, and I try and I how you can do it too and get there really, really quickly. So um, I don't want people to learn to do it fast because if you're like I was at 15, you're struggling, you're closing your eyes, not much is happening, you're thinking a lot of negative thoughts, and that's why most people try meditation and then drop out. So in the book, I look at what science tells us are the most efficient forms of meditation. What will get you there quickest? And it turns out that all meditations are not created equal. There are things you can do that will make, that will trigger positive neural plasticity in your brain faster than others. And so there's good research now on what these things are. I lay it out in the book. And just one example of this is intensity. If you meditate and you feel it in your body, and again, the meditation I share with people in the book, there are, are eight free meditations in the book. And if they use those meditations, we found that they'll feel the effects of them in their body, usually in the first few minutes. And you then deliberately intensify the experience. And when you intensify the experience, you trigger quicker neuroplasticity. Your neurons start firing faster and your brain starts wiring along those pathways. Neurons that fire together, wire together. And so the book looks at what science tells us makes our brains rewire the quickest. And certain meditation techniques and meditation hacks do that more quickly. And an example of one is intensity. You sit there, you feel it, and then you feel it more intensely. So one of those eight free meditations is part of this brain is to train you to feel it and then feel it more intensely. Now, the intriguing thing is that not only is meditation having this effect on us in these physical ways, we also find that it's having an effect on us in metaphysical ways. And so, for example, one huge study 
looking at all the meditation trials that have been done over the last 50 years, found that meditators have higher reports, higher number of experiences of phenomena like clairvoyance, telepathy, psychokinesis, distant healing, synchronicity, all of these things seem to appear in the lives of people who meditate much more than they do in the lives of people who don't. So there seems to be some sense in which meditation by, as we let go of our small local selves, our small local suffering, miserable sense of who we are, and join with this wonderful benevolent universe we live in, suddenly it looks like we have information coming to us from the universe we're able to translate and then incorporate in our local story. So meditation has all these amazing effects, both on our body and on our mind. Yeah, I love that. And which has been my experience as well, as I incorporated meditation and these studies of just mindfulness more and more into my life, I've become more in touch with my intuition. Um, I want to ask you about the effects of um, meditating together or you know, intending to go in this headspace together with with the um, you know in t uh, backstory of I feel like what I do as a healer is most of the time I sort of put myself in a state which then relaxes the person that I'm working with. Can you talk a bit about that? How we affect each other? Yeah, there are studies that show that, and the healers feel is affecting the healies field and actually entrains the healies field and you can measure the human energy field about 15 feet away so three meters or so away from the body you can detect the energy field of the body and so even when i'm a long way away from somebody uh, six feet or, or so i'm still having a field interaction with their field and research on heart rate variability shows that if the healer is in this really calm state of even heart rate variability that that entrains the person they're working on in that same healing calming space and that that gives the healy a template in which to which is a reference point to enter that, that same same state themselves so you can do that now the what, what this can't explain is distant healing how is this possible in uh in in distances over like 20 feet, 50 feet, 100 feet, 100 miles, 1,000 kilometers. And like, for example, there are some studies I report in my book, Mind to Matter, about a Chinese Qigong master. And he was able to have the same effect, distant healing effects, 1,000 kilometers away. And there's no drop off. The effect is the same. Another study I report in Mind to Matter, the healer is able to have an effect dozens of miles away and is literally affecting the energy field of the room we're sending healing intention to. So uh, we that's a, a question that science will explore in the future. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Okay, m one of my personal questions to you is the differences between the, the male brain and the, and the female brain. And the reason I'm asking that is um, for me personally, I find um, that I'm First of all, I'm not the same person throughout the month. <laughs> I change much to my uh, husband's dismay. And, uh, <laughs> and I also find that, for instance, if I'm getting closer to my moon cycle, the kind of meditation I need is not the same as if I'm ovulating. Because if I'm ovulating, I can get to bliss brain like that. If I'm in, in the turmoil of getting to a renewal phase, I'm... 
um, you know, I may need more EFT in one sitting before I, you know, move on to mindfulness meditation. What is your take on that? Yeah, and it, it's, it really pays to know your rhythms. Not only that, but I find that in my personal life, um, I have a two-week rhythm. And so for two weeks, I'm going deeper and deeper into meditation. It's easy, it's effortless. And then for two weeks, it actually becomes less effortless. And I, I have to apply myself more. And then if you extrapolate that, you'll think it'll get, it'll get more and more difficult, but it doesn't. You kind of crest the hill, then it's back down into the cycle. So we do have these rhythms. In my book, Genie in Your Genes, I talk about our circadian rhythms and our ultradian rhythms. So we have these big rhythms week by week in our lives, month by month in our lives, even year by year in our lives. We also have biorhythms that are just 24 hours long. Sleep and wake is a really good example. We have clock genes that turn on and off and then we get sleepy around 10 o'clock when those clock genes are doing their thing. We wake up around 6 a.m. in the morning when those clock genes are making us wake up again. So there, there are all these biorhythms. And it's really, it's really important to understand yours. Um, I can't understand yours and you can't understand mine nearly as well as you can understand yours. I can give you hints and tips, but it's really worth keeping a, a that's why I keep a journal. One of the reasons I keep a journal is I can see after a few months what my patterns are. What are your patterns of, um, of for example, what are your patterns of, of sleep? When is your sleep disrupted? When are your patterns of cravings? When are your patterns of, say, having a harder time dealing with your emotions? It really helps to know yourself in this way. And then you can calibrate your activities to, to that. One therapist friend of mine had a long history of depression, both of her parents had major depressive disorder. She had two brothers who committed suicide. And her answer to her depression was exercise. When her exercise, when, when her depression symptoms began to increase, she upped her exercise and she treated her depression with exercise. But she knew herself well enough to do that. So um, you just get to know yourself after a while and what you need at different times of the month. Yeah. Uh, can you tell a little bit about... Um, meditation and children. I have an eight-year-old daughter and I've actually been tapping with her. We sometimes do guided meditations, but in her mind, still meditation is something that someone sits and doesn't move and it's, it's very boring to her. So what is your take on that? How can we introduce meditation to our children and how can we motivate them for it? Yeah, and meditation uh, can be done with children when they're ready. And obviously it shouldn't be forced on children, but just seeing you meditate will imprint that idea in, in her mind. Also, children, meditation is a means to an end. Uh, if I went and, um, if I had dinner with my best friend last night at a restaurant downtown, and you were asking, what did you do last night? I, I would tell you, I, I went and had dinner with my best friend at a restaurant downtown. I, that's what I, I would tell you if you asked me. What I wouldn't tell you is I wouldn't say, I, last night I took the bus, but I did take the bus. I took the bus downtown to have dinner with my friend. And I took the bus back. I don't even mention you that I took the bus. Uh, how you got there is not really important. What you did and the state you were in, what you experienced is very important. And in that way, meditation is just a bus, it's just the vehicle that gets us there. And where it gets us to is a flow state. And as you practice flow states, it gets you to more and more elevated emotional ecstatic flow states, but you're in a flow state. And so some people get there by sitting meditation. 
Others, for example, get there with moving meditation. That's why Sufis do Sufi dancing and yogis do yoga and Qigong people do Tai Chi or Qigong. Those are all forms of meditation that are, look quite different. And I have seven of those that I describe in Bliss Brain. You want to experiment with them to find the one that's best for you. And children can get into flow very, very easily. I look at my grandchildren and I can tell in a few moments if they're in flow or not. When they're out of flow, it's really obvious. When they're in flow, it's obvious. And so the main thing, is your daughter in flow? And then when she's not in, not in flow, can some tapping bring her back into flow? Will just sitting quietly for a little while bring her back into flow? You look for ways of appropriately giving your children guidance in what might bring them back into that flow state. But usually kids gravitate naturally into flow, much more than adults do. We've been trained out of flow. We were, we were, we were told to, you know, we were kids, we were told to sit still. We weren't able to explore the world the way we wanted to, wanted to. So as adults, we have to retrain ourselves to find the flow we knew as children. Yeah. You talk about um, meditating in the morning, first thing in the morning, which I have to say has inspired me. I've been a meditator for a long time, but it's been for the longest time, like whenever, where, wherever. And um, I'm happy to say through, <laughs> through your <laughs> encouragement, I'm, I'm dedicating more time to meditating in the morning. Um, so I want to ask you about that. What's so special about meditating in the morning? And also, is there minimum time to meditate? Yes, and uh, the, the answer to both of those questions is that science does give us answers. And so there's kind of a scale, kind of like a, an octave in music, our uh, brain waves. And the highest wave is gamma, and the slowest wave is delta. And most of the day, we have a little bit of all those brain waves, but our predominant brain wave during our waking hours is beta. That's our brain wave of our waking consciousness. When we go to sleep, our beta wave brain waves shrink a lot and our alpha waves get bigger. So alpha gets bigger as we're falling asleep. Then when we're in sleep, alpha goes away and our two slowest waves are there. And those are delta and theta. And so we spend almost the whole night in delta. And that's the very, very, very slow brain wave. And it also is a brain wave in which all kinds of healing is happening in our body and our tissues, all kinds of restoration in our mind, brain, memory, all kinds of healing processes like neural repair, bone and muscle repair, all of those things are happening in Delta. And then every roughly 90 minutes, we have a change in brain function. We enter into theta, still not a conscious state, still, still subconscious, but there we have dreams, vivid dreams. That's rapid eye movement sleep. So most of the night we're in non-rapid eye movement sleep, Delta, and then every 90 minutes we have a short period of rapid eye movement theta sleep. And then when we wake up, we move back into alpha. It's that drowsy state between sleep and wakefulness. We become fully awake and then we're in beta. And then we have almost no alpha, theta, and delta. So if you're in that in-between state, just waking up from sleep and you're in alpha, you're still in that like really drifting space. If you can meditate then, then you're going to have a lot of access to theta and delta, and it'll be easier to generate alpha waves in your brain. If you're really busy and there's a lot of beta, it's hard to get to alpha. And you need alpha to have access to that, those subconscious and unconscious layers of theta and delta. It's just easier to do it in the morning for that reason. You can do it any time of the day, but it's easier when you're in that drowsy 
dreamy state. But as far as how long, um, in the research in Bliss Brain, we show that it, at the very, very minimum, it takes people 12 minutes a day for eight weeks. And in an MRI study I did, it took people 22 minutes a day for four weeks. So they just listened to my guided meditation every day for 22 minutes. The control group listened to a control track. We controlled for all kinds of variables, very similar, similar groups. And within just four weeks, those novices listening to that guided meditation showed the same brain activity patterns as meditation masters. Their suffering brains shut down, their compassionate parts of the brain lit up, and they were super happy. So 22 minutes a day, four weeks, and your brain starts re to remodel itself. Lovely, lovely. So I'm so curious to hear about, I know that as a researcher, you're probably already thinking about your next project. What are you excited to learn more about, write about? What are you looking forward to? The last chapter of Bliss Brain is where Bliss Brain takes us next. And what I'm showing is if you look at the 100 year scale of history, that humankind is on a, a huge upward trajectory in all kinds of ways. So right now people are very worried about all these problems we have. But if you step back into the five year view, 10 year view, 100-year view, 500-year view, we're on a really positive trajectory as human beings. Our lifespan is double what it was 100 years ago. Female literacy, in fact, literacy of people all over the world has skyrocketed in the last century. Even despite the financial crashes, and that means that 1988 stock, 99 stock market crash and the dot-com bubble and the housing bubble and the, and the, and the pandemic, crash, all of those crash. I mean, they're all these, these economic upheavals, but the average global citizen is three times as wealthy as he or she was today, as he or she was in 1980. Our global wealth per capita has trebled, tripled since 1980. There's a huge amount of human well-being. Our lifespans are getting longer. Our wealth, our wealth is increasing. Our IQ, IQ is going up about three points globally every 10 years. We're getting smarter and we're getting more compassionate. There are a lot of signs of us getting more compassionate. In fact, I wrote a, a blog at the beginning of the, the pandemic called The Pandemic of Compassion. And I went around and looked at all of the things going on that show that people were becoming more compassionate and all the evidence of compassion, how in, um, in Canada, people were making sure their elderly, elderly neighbors got food. And in fact, there's always fear mongering at the beginning of the pandemic. And the Canadians coined a new word in Canada called care mongering. They began care mongering for each other. So that is the option you can have is to be a care monger. In Iran, at what, all the mosques got closed. So suddenly all the mosques, all the houses of worship are closed throughout the, the country. Iranian women began to get together in those closed mosques and they were knitting, they were sewing face masks for other people. And they were, they were just doing this because there weren't face masks available in Iran. And so women were doing this spontaneously. They were helping each other. They were helping the community. Um, in, in one town in Texas, <laughs> this couple left their 
restaurant table after buying their meal. So this couple finished their meal, got up and left, and the staff went over to collect their credit card slip where they signed their, for their meal and they left a tip. And they left a tip of $54,000. They said to the restaurant owners, we'd love to help you get through these difficult times. So we're in the middle of this pandemic of compassion. And what I'm gonna do in the next book is I'm gonna see where this is taking us as a species, because it's very clear that evolutionarily, something is going on here. Never before has any species been able to change its own brain hardware using its own consciousness. This is something that's never happened. It's unprecedented in evolutionary history. Where does this take us? And where it takes us is a very, very different world from the world we know today. So that's where I'm uh, going to go once Bliss Brain becomes, I really want Bliss Brain to reach you know, millions of people. And that's really my, my, my current focus. And once that is launched, I'll then start to focus on that next project. That's wonderful. I'm so looking forward to, I actually ordered a couple <laughs> today just to gift people because I feel you have such an important message and you're putting it in a way that actually makes sense when we look at all these studies, as well as your personal stories, which brings me to one of the things you talk about is, um, and I, I wanna emphasize it because I, in my work, work with people with what I call energetic wounds, and um, you work with PTSD, and, and um, I love how you put it uh, in, this, in the way of, not just talking about the negative effects of trauma, but you also talk about post-traumatic growth. And you're the perfect example of that. You've had a quite a, uh, a big event in 2017, I believe. Can you tell us about that? And can you tell us about what post-traumatic growth means? Yeah, and research shows that when confronted with shattering life trauma, about a third of people get PTSD they start to have flashbacks and nightmares and intrusive thoughts, and it really has a big effect on their psychology and on their bodies. But a third of people have what's called post-traumatic growth, and they actually use tragedy as a springboard for transformation. And so my wife and I were caught up in one of the periodic California wildfires in 2017. We lost our, our home, our office, and that's the first chapter of Bliss Brain. It begins with this really not blissful event of, of having two minutes to grab your car keys, run from your house before the fire engulfs uh, your house and takes it all away. So that's, that's, that's the, the, the first chapter of Bliss Brain. But then chapter seven is all about post-traumatic growth and about how people can grow after they have a trauma. And so I have other examples there of my own life, from the lives of other people, from one Iraq veteran who had, a, had terrible PTSD after Iraq, discovered meditation and was able to recover. So there is a lot of evidence that that is possible. And that really gives us a frame for our current troubles. We have to realize that, sure, we can go down psychologically and physically and spiritually. We can just get crushed by all the problems we have in our lives. But we can also use those as the fuel to 
transform our lives and become the people we want to be. So that's the big message of the book is post-traumatic growth is actually normal and possible. Yeah, I love that. That actually shed light to my own story, I feel like, in my own journey, understanding like all of these tools that I've been using from energy healing to sound healing to EFT have been sort of reshaping my brain in, in uh, positive ways, in more expanded ways. So I want to thank you so much for that. Thank you for sharing your time with me and my listeners. Um, and I just want to say one more thing. I feel like like having known about your work and um, you know diving deeper into this book and the meditation aspect, it feels to me like work is very much a sacred service for you. It's not just for the sake of work, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's something you're doing to help people evolve and change. So I really, truly appreciate that. Thank you so, so much, Dawson. Um, I wanna direct people to your website. Um, there's of course the book links, which I will include. They, you, they can go to bliss, is it blissbrain.com? Blissbrain.com. Yes. You can go to DawsonGift.com. You have a bunch of uh, gifts and meditations. And particularly, uh, um, I love the echo meditation that you're offering, which is a combination of best practices from heart coherence to mindfulness to EFT. And it's, uh, they're, they're about 15 to 20 minutes long. And I found them really helpful. Um, you have a, a few different versions of the same meditation uh, in the Bliss Brain book gifts. And thank you so, so much. Is there anything you want to share with self-healers and healers uh, before we wrap up? Just know that we have such resources available at that level of non-local mind. We live in a universe that loves us. We love, live in a universe with infinite resources. As we let go of our suffering, as we let go of our little local selves and just join with the great non-local mystery there is just happiness there's love there's bliss there's joy there is wisdom out there that you just wouldn't believe and you can get super happy and you can have a brain that's happy and resilient and creative and joyful so i really encourage you to do your practice meditate use eft tapping use the techniques on those websites that dama gave you and see how you very very quickly start to actually produce the, the wiring in your brain that predisposes you to make those characteristics your own. Thank you so much, Dawson. Thank you everyone for listening. If you've listened so far, please subscribe as well. <laughs> and heart, yes, <laughs> it's all for the love of it. And I hope you uh, learned something. I know I have, and you got uh, some motivation to get meditating. Thank you so much.